Uh, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for that warm, singular response. <laughs> uh, my name is Connor Geerty, and I am chairing this afternoon's, this evening's discussion, uh, Enriching Our Lives, Why the Humanities and Social Sciences Matter Now. And what we've got is a partnership. The British Academy and the small print you might not be able to read for the humanities and social sciences on the left, and LSE's Institute of Public Affairs, of which I'm director, on the right. And the Academy has been greatly interested in establishing a good case for research in the humanities and social sciences. Uh, that it can be made is clear that it is different from the case made by science is also clear. We're not able to prove that we can cure things and we're not able to establish how you can build bridges and so on, so we have a different perspective on things. And the Academy has published, which Nick has in front of him and possibly will now wave, a little magazine which is also accessible with all sorts of gizmos You'd never have thought the British Academy was capable of it. <laughs> Double clicks that open all sorts of things on the web. And it's called Prospering Wisely. And it's the Academy's effort to engage in this discussion about the importance of humanities and social sciences. So I think what we're going to do is... Sorry, I'm, this is what we're going to do. Let's have no spurious democracy here. <laughs> we're going to have a, a little introductory video. And then I'm going to ask Nick to speak, introducing him ever so briefly, then Julia, then, and we're delighted to have an alum, Greg Clark, uh, Minister, and then we're going to have a little interchange between us, and then over to you, and we're supposed to end at something like 25 past seven. So that's the menu, and I'm reliably assured that there is a human being in the room who will now be able to actualize, to misuse a word, a video which will tell you a little bit about what the Academy has been doing in this arena by way of introduction. What is it, about three minutes long? Something like that. Something like that. Uh, the guests may want to look at it. <laughs> Probably a good idea. They may not. <laughs> Prosperity. What does it mean and how can it be fostered? How can people and communities have the opportunity to prosper and realise their full potential? How can they expand their capabilities, as Amartya Sen puts it, so as to lead the kind of lives they value and have reason to value? That's the kind of question the British Academy's Prospering Wisely project has been exploring. Prosperity is a very broad concept. It's way beyond income or consumption or wealth measured in a material sense. It's how we live our lives, how we deal with uncertainty and anxiety, what our sense of community, relationships and society really is. The idea of Prospering Wisely is to try to understand what some, not all, but some of the objects of public policy should be, and also to understand how those objects might be pursued. As you start phrasing the question that way, immediately the whole of humanities and social sciences come in. The sciences can tell us wonderful things about how to heal illness, how to cure uh, particular sorts of malaise 
but it's historians, it's the humanities, it's social sciences who talk about the Malaysian society, explain the mysterious ways in which human beings behave to each other, which are not susceptible of putting into formulae. They are that mysterious thing, human nature. That's what we deal with. And if you don't have a healthy humanities, social sciences sector, your country will go mad. I think that the quality of the interface between public life and public curiosity and the humanities and the social sciences has never been better than it is now. I personally feel that there is more interest in matters of the mind and society and culture, interest in understanding ourselves and understanding our origins and where we're going to in the future than at any point during my own career. I think we've got a fantastic opportunity uh, to expand intelligent public debate, which is informed by all the kinds of different aspects uh, of of the areas of study that the Academy represents. It's clearly becoming more and more urgent that we learn how to live more harmoniously with people who have very different notions of what a society is. Uh, That's more evident every day. And that makes it even more important that we find ways to use collections like the British Museum and the other collections across the country to explain how the world can be thought in different ways. And that requires the contribution of those working in the humanities and the social sciences in universities. What it's about is defining the ideas that make our society function and operate. And that's what people studying the humanities for the last 2,000 years has enabled us to do. The humanities and social sciences are about understanding and taking decisions when you haven't got a magic wand. They're about uh, understanding the difficult issues of our time, identity, community, relationships, societies, all which require something about public policy and decision-making. The key is to bring principles and ideas to very difficult and complex decision-making and understanding so that we can find a way forward. It's important to remind government, indeed, those who make decisions and allocate resources wherever they are in society, just how powerful resource we are, just how much our activities matter. As was indicated, there's a website where you can get much more of that. And it has these interviews and so on at some length. So now we have uh, pre-interventions, shortish, preparatory to the discussion. Uh, I'm delighted to uh, ask my colleague, the President the Academy and, of course, a prof here, uh, Nick Stern, to kick us off. Nick. Um, would you like us to stay here or to stand up? I, I think it's, it's, a, it's how you feel. I, you I feel relaxed. I'll stand up, if that's stand. Right. Yeah. And, and as a lawyer, I must point out this is no precedent <laughs> for <laughs> Professor Black or Dr. Clark. Did you get your PhD? I did. Dr. Clark. <laughs> <laughs> okay. is, uh, is this one working? And uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Greg, particularly for coming because uh, we, you know, we're supposed to be here, uh, but you have... Uh, actually, you're supposed to be here as well, but you, you have jobs which are very demanding elsewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, now, the, 
British Academy does the humanities and the social sciences, and it uh, tries to um, it tries to be excellent. You, you, you sound terribly pompous if you say we're after excellence, but uh, I guess uh, we are. Um, but it's not just the importance of the subject and the idea that you've got some people who are quite good at it. Um, that doesn't by itself constitute a persuasive argument for anybody to support you. You've got to show what you do. And actually, you don't want to spend much time uh, arguing for support. You just want to spend your time discussing the big issues, discussing what matters, discussing evidence, discussing uh, meaning. And uh, as you do that, you hope that um, you are being useful and other people will see it. So that's what uh, I think we should focus on tonight. Not, not special pleading, but having a look at our subjects at, at work. And uh, that's what we want to try to share. That's what Prospering Wisely was trying to do. Let, let me begin by saying that I think at the moment um, we see in many Western societies, and I would suspect well beyond Western societies, a hunger for this kind of discussion. If you look at uh, the... Uh, disaffection with politics. Um, the, I think uh, Gus O'Donnell quotes that the membership of all the political parties put together is less than that of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Now, I, I actually am a member of the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, I think it's rather good, but that is a reflection, as it were, of um, uh, worry and dislike, um, anxiety about uh, politics and political institutions. It's other institutions too, uh, often uh, religious institutions, sometimes the police and the law. I think you see a worry about how our societies are functioning and a worry about the ideas that lie behind them and the institutions and how they work and the politics. Of course, a worry about my own subject, in particular economics, which has quite rightly come under, the, uh, under hot examination in, uh, in recent times. So I think there's never been... Uh, that's too strong. There is now a very powerful uh, desire to discuss the difficult issues about how societies function, what it is that uh, we're about. So that's what I want to focus the remarks on. The, let me begin with... And I'll appeal to a number of fellows of British Academy and their contributions and indeed actually appealed to a number of the past presidents of the British Academy in, uh, in so doing. But the first thing we do is ask who we are and what we seek as human beings, what it means to be human. Now, the humanities are up that end, but uh, everything I talk about will see humanities um, flowing into what the social scientists think they do and the social scientists flowing into what the people in the humanities think they do, so trying too hard to pull them apart um, is, uh, is just not, not worth it. But who we are and what we seek. If you think of um, Amartya Sen, who, um, in wearing his uh, philosopher's hat as well as his economist's hat, he's asked about um, identity and uh, justice and capability and empowerment. Onora O'Neill... The, one of my predecessors as president of the Academy, I think has given the most illuminating insight into trust, or, as she says, actually it's not so much about trust, it's about understanding trustworthiness, 
No, she argues you want uh, less trust in the untrustworthy and more trust in the trustworthy, so that moves trustworthiness to centre stage. Those of you who... who, She's got a wonderful TED Talk with over a million hits. Actually, if you want ten minutes exploring this, go to Onora O'Neill's TED Talk. Um, If you think of Keith Thomas, uh, a very distinguished historian, former president of the Academy, has written about the ends of life, um, a very uh, insightful historical view of what now is uh, put under the heading of well-being, what it is that uh, people seek. I always stay away from happy. I always think that... Uh, I mean, it's nice to be happy, but if happiness is the only objective, then you've you got chemicals. But, the, um, <laughs> uh, but if you ask what we seek and what is fulfilling, what makes us anxious, all those are very um, important questions. What it is that people seek in this case um, was... Uh, um, Keith Thomas's contribution on the ends of life. Um, it's more than that, of course. It's not just what people are looking after. It's the societies they, w- they live in and key things about those societies. And Isaiah Berlin, as a former president of the Academy, um, asking about the meaning of liberty and putting that under the uh, spotlight. I think once you go into those issues and think about the contributions, you realise how much these things matter, not as, uh, just as academic seminars, but people really do put liberty and justice and um, well-being and trust and trustworthiness at the centre of their lives. You don't have to argue that it matters. People, I think, respond directly that it does matter to them. And thus being clear-headed and thoughtful about what these things really mean does matter. Let me turn now to more explicit social science approaches and the emphasis on evidence. Again, I think that our subjects, when they're practised well, uh, really show how powerful evidence um, can be. If you look at the Behavioural Insights team, which went to the centre of government and asked not just how do people behave, but how can our understanding of how people behave help with policy? So when will people... Um, insulate their lofts? What kind of service can you provide which makes it more likely that they'll insulate their lofts? It turns out that what worries people most about their lofts is all the junk they've got in them and their hearts sink at the the necessity to sort it out so they never get insulated. But if you offer a service which uh, organises their junk and you can promise to put it back exactly where it was before or you can promise to sort it for them and dump half of it, whichever it is that uh, makes it easier for them. You know, there's, there are the stories of you know, opt-in and opt-out of uh, pension schemes. You give people exactly the same choice, but if they have to tick to opt-out or tick to opt-in, you get very different results. That's very important information. It's information, actually, that has to be used with great care. Now, who are you to steer them towards their better self and get them to uh, opt-out of the pension contributions rather than opt-in. I think you probably should, but you'd have to think hard about what gives you that right. But those are examples of the um, importance of um, evidence. If you think of John Hills's work, LSE and British Academy, on uh, fuel poverty, and the biggest way of fighting uh, fuel poverty is um, to insulate the houses of um, old poor people. It's, uh, in my view, and this is Nick Stern's observation coming in here, it's absolutely bonkers to have lower uh, VAT on uh, 
energy. It's much better to spend the money on uh, helping people who really are poor. And John Hill showed uh, um, how that was the most effective of the uh, insulating old people's poor old people's houses, the most effective way of combating fuel poverty. If you think of Tony Atkinson's work on um, the inequality, Tony Atkinson, the teacher of Thomas Piketty, nice boy, Thomas, but uh, uh, he's a student of Tony Atkinson. And you go back to the master. And Tony's work, for example, which is being published in April, well, Tony's been publishing on this ever since I'd known him, which is the late 1960s. But um, Tony's been publishing, and he's been the absolute, he's been quite an extraordinary leader in sorting out uh, the quality of data, assembling it, and showing what's going on. A remarkable thing has happened in British society, which I hope will get much more scrutiny in this election campaign than perhaps it has in the past. We were right up to the uh, 1980s, at the end of the 1970s, we were up the a bit more equal end of OECD countries. And uh, the, that jumped up quite phenomenally. I mean, Gini coefficient's jumping up from 0.25 to 0.35 in household income per capita. Um, it jumped right up in the 1980s to around 0.35. Huge increase in a decade or so. And we moved up from a bit better than the average, if you think less inequality is better, uh, to um, a bit more. Uh, and in fact, it's a lot more unequal than the average of the OECD countries. And it's stayed that way since the early 1980s, whichever government has been there. It's been a very important observation on British society, which I think actually hasn't had the scrutiny that it should. We were a fairly equal society. We changed in the 1980s, and we've stayed unequal, at least a lot more unequal, during that period, notwithstanding which governments we've seen over that uh, period. That's evidence that really matters to how we think about ourselves. So I think these are the kinds of evidence, you know, what works, what doesn't work, which was the sort of John Hill's behavioural insights team sort of story, and then who are we and what have we become, the uh, Tony Atkinson kind of uh, story. I, I could go on, but you can see the kind of thing that I'm driving at, the evidence and putting it out in a systematic way changes and should change the nature of the discussions that we have about who we are and what we, uh, what we do. Of course, it's not just uh, understanding and solving. It's also sometimes it's our duty to be difficult. And there are times when academics are a key locus of awkwardness, and that's part of democracy. And uh, you see around the world when you get repressions, they start with the universities and, uh, in a sense... If you want to put down repression, if you want to be repressive, it's an, it's an intelligent place to start, the universities, because that's where the challenge and uh, difficultness, dif being difficult, should, uh, should be. It's not just being difficult. It's also doing things that other people can't do. And that you, you saw um, Neil McGregor here, and I'm deputy chair of the trustees of the British Museum. And we've done two things uh, which I'll draw attention to, which surely can be seen. Soft power is not a very elegant term, and I go to Helen Wallace here, our foreign secretary, to get more elegant terms for this kind of thing. But um, we lent, and it was a very difficult discussion in the board of the British Museum, we lent the Cyrus Cylinder to Iran uh, several years ago. 
Cyrus said in the wonderful thing, 500 or so BC, which was really one of the first declarations of human rights. It was on clay. That was the, um, that was the, the Facebook or earlier days, the Xerox and so on, of the Samizdat of the time. And uh, it sets out, uh, this is Cyrus conquering that uh, area of Iraq. He sets out uh, how to treat conquered nations. He sets out the right of return, pretty relevant to that part of the world now. He uh, sets out freedom of religion. Um, it was a, a great, greatly admired by Thomas Jefferson. So we sent it. It was very against the advice of the Foreign Office, explicitly against the advice of the Foreign Office. We sent it to Iran at a time when relations were very difficult. That's what you can do. That's what, it seems to me, the humanities, the culture, the social sciences should do to bring nations, bring nations together, promote understanding between peoples. You can't do that kind of thing unless you really understand what you've got. You need the British Museum and all the study and the scholarship and the history to, go, to make that kind of thing happen. And we've just lent uh, a river god to um, the Hermitage. Again, at a time when relationship with Russia were not good. This time we didn't ask the Foreign Office what they thought. <laughs> we told them the night before so they wouldn't be completely blindsided. But I think we helped them because it, we didn't give them the chance to object. And they probably wouldn't have wanted the chance to object because they wouldn't have known what to do with the chance to object. And that's reaching out to the other great museum which embodies the values of the Enlightenment, which is the Hermitage, founded at a very close, similar time to the British Museum. Those were very important public acts by a public institution, British Museum, which was not the government, and fiercely uh, asserted its independence from government. These are the kinds of things that we do, it seems to me, that makes our subjects so valuable and uh, so exciting. I, I'm an economist. I haven't quantified any of those things. Um, but I think, I hope, you'd recognise that they're all important. I could go on about many things. I think uh, I've spoken about who we are, what we seek. I've spoken about evidence. I've spoken about occasionally being awkward, about soft power. I think our subjects are good at identifying the big challenges of our time. Um, Ageing, urbanisation, um, security of various kinds, climate change, I guess I would say that, wouldn't I? But it is one of the big challenges of our time. And most of these things, most of these things, I hope it's obvious, require virtually everything we've got in terms of intellectual ammunition to take them on. You can't talk about um, climate without thinking about the, about the science, about the technology, about the economics, about the ethics of uh, what we do now relative to what comes later, without thinking about international relations, without thinking from psychology about how people really do behave and understand problems which are stochastic in the sense they're uncertain. They are on a scale way outside human experience. They've got very long lags, and they involve public goods. The science has made that problem just about as difficult as it could be. And all those things, that it's stochastic, it's on a huge scale outside our experience, involves very long lags, and is public in the sense that 
doesn't matter whether that tonne of carbon comes from Johannesburg or from uh, London or Beijing. All those things are in the science. But that science has thrown up problems of uncertainty, scale, lags, public goods, ethics, which are deep in our subjects. And you couldn't expect to have a serious discussion of those issues without integrating all those things together. And that's really the last theme of what I wanted to say, is that most big problems, I won't say all, but most big problems and most challenges involve the interweaving of all those subjects. We should celebrate the interweaving. We should go about, walk arm in arm, study, understand with our fellow academics in science and technology, engineering, medicine. We should work with them to take on these very big issues. It's why um, many of us bridle against a kind of um, spitting contest. I could use another verb, but a kind of spitting contest between um, STEM on the one hand and humanities and social sciences on the other. It's just daft. I mean, it doesn't, it shows a lack of understanding of what the issues are at the heart of these subjects. So it's clear in, in climate change. I, I could have gone, and, and Alan Wilson is here, is one of our great lead thinkers about the way cities work. And uh, he started life as uh, a mathematician, and he's a fellow of the British Academy and of the Royal Society. You can't understand cities. You know, where 50% of the population now live, 3.5 billion people, by 2050 it will be 70% of um, nine-some billion, that will be 6.5 billion people. We're going to see 3 billion more people in our cities in uh, the next 35 years. That is fast-forward, quite extraordinary pace of change. You can't understand those problems without putting all the various subjects together. An oil company is uh, logistics, finance, anthropology, international relations, lawyers, yeah? primarily, but, and more things. Of course, it's a bit of geology and a bit of kit attached as well. You say that to people in oil companies, they say, yeah, of course. But we think of you know, it as some subject which is outside the humanities and the social sciences, virtually all activity of, of seriousness, all challenges which we have to rise to involve that interweaving. So one thing that we don't do when we talk about the humanities and social sciences is to set them against the other subject. That is confusion and, and basically dishonest. Of course, we should resist when other people do that because they if they insist that it's only the STEM subjects that are productive. They miss the point. But we don't meet that point by dissing the STEM subjects. We meet that point by showing how important the integration is, and that's what we try to do. Now, if you do do the counting, nearly the you know, vast majority of cabinet ministers come from humanities and social sciences. A significant majority of the heads of big companies come from the humanities and social sciences. 75% of our economy is uh, services. The biggest growth of productivity, well, if you take the years before we got into the stagnation of 2008, fastest rate of growth of productivity is in the, um, a lot of the service sectors, particularly some of the business and retail uh, service uh, sectors. So you can see, actually, if you play the game of counting and economic growth and so on, our subjects are absolutely central and important drivers of productivity and uh, economic growth. Uh, manufacturing and the cultural um, 
and creative industries are, are now about equal, 8, 9, 10% of the economy, and probably the cultural creative industry is growing a bit faster than manufacturing. But you don't have to set these things against each other. That's a mistake. What we see is an economy where our subjects and um, the STEM subjects come together and, if managed well, really produce a dynamic economy. And if they're studied well, they produce a society which is, uh, thinks hard about standard of living but also about um, values, liberty, democracy and uh, so on. So few sort of numbers at the end, but that's not where I want it to begin. But uh, the numbers do count, and the productivity does count, and uh, that is a part of our argument, actually, on which we are on very secure ground. Thanks very much. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Nick, very much. Uh, uh, next we have uh, the what we call Director Research here at LSE, uh, my colleague and friend Julia Black, who is also a professor of law. Julia, stand up as well. There's precedence been created for you. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so good evening, everybody. And my um, many things that I wanted to focus on have been addressed by um, by Nick, but I think one of the one of my briefs here is to talk about what does it mean for the LSE to be a centre of excellence. Um, it's quite an interesting question. And, and first of all, we are a centre of excellence. So I think that was, that's both in terms of our, our research, in terms of our teaching. We did fantastically in the ref, I have to say that, that we came, you know, overall it was imperial first, us second. So that's just brilliant. You know, we are top for social sciences on, on practically any measure. And, and there was a point at which I think there were over 14 universities claiming to be in the top 10. Actually, in the ref, but uh, but no, no matter which way you slice and dice it, we did really, really well. But also, we came uh, one of the new elements of our research excellence framework, research uh, evaluation exercise was for the first time universities had to put in documented um, evidence of the impacts of their research, not just their impacts on teaching, um, but what effects research has had outside academia, both on policy making, on the way we understand ourselves, on culture, um, on curricula, the way we're taught, uh, and so forth. And that was a new challenge for universities. But in fact, for, for the LSE, it, it really has just been part of our DNA. The LSE was established for the betterment of society. That is the founding principle um, of, of the Fabians who uh, first started the LSE with a view really to improving public administration, improving the way that we manage ourselves, we organise ourselves, and that has really been central to the mission um, of the LSE ever since. And so for us, engaging with those outside academia, thinking about how we can affect policy, how we can manage ourselves, understand ourselves, how we select the risks that we're going to try and manage for the future has been an integral part of what we've always done. And just to highlight some of those areas in which we work, I mean, we are known as the, obviously, our, the, the clues in the title, the London School of Economics and Political Science, obviously, sometimes the political science gets dropped off the end. And we do do an awful lot of economics, both in the economics department and quite a lot of economics outside the economics department in the LSE as well. Uh, we have our Centre for Economic Performance, we have the What Work Centre, we have a Spatial Economic Research Centre looking at all sorts of different aspects that Nick's been talking about in terms of economic growth um, and urban design. But we also work in 
a phenomenal wide range of areas in addition to that. So in relation to health, for example, as Nick's talked about, we have to work in partnership with scientists. We have, for example, going through, and I haven't managed to catch up with the vote today in the House of Commons, we have going through the House's vote in the House of Commons about whether, we, whether you can have um, uh, uh, an embryo fetus created using the DNA from three people. Now, science has enabled that possibility, but actually it's, it's the ethical implications of that, and then it's actually the management and the regulation and the implementation of that policy um, which actually is, has to be considered in terms of how do we then manage and want to choose to react to what it is that science can enable us as a society to do. Do we want to take that choice um, and which way do we want to go on that? So those, those issues, as Nick said, have to be taken in context and they have to be taken in partnership uh, with scientists. In terms of health, so yes... Health pharmaceutical companies can produce drugs, but within LSE we've looked at, well, actually, how do you administer a a disease eradication program on a mass scale in sub-Saharan Africa? Yes, you can produce the lovely pill, but how do you get people to take that pill in the right way, in a way which is actually going to eradicate the disease that it's been designed to, to address? How do you motivate health workers to actually deliver the type of health care that the scientists, the medics, etc., have decided um, and have shown uh, that is actually going to be effective. But we also engage with the foundations of science, with the philosophy of science. How should you use evidence, evidence-based from clinical trials, which are done in a nice randomised setting? How can you take that work and actually then put it into a real-life situation where patients are taking this medication in a wider context? Or take into example in relation to climate change. Yes, science gives us, the, gives us, the, gives us some of the problems and, and might, be able to, might be able to use that to find some of the answers. But in terms of thinking about the risks going forward for climate change, how should we be thinking about that? Should we be thinking about should we use these very heavily dense probabilistic models um, to deal with this uncertainty or actually better up facing up to it and using much more scenario-based analysis? Okay, rather than um, a different, those other different forms. How, in fact, do models travel through the policy process? How are they selected? How are we making those choices um, which we're being asked to confront? And all that work we do here at the LSE. We do um, engaging in all of those different issues. In relation to, Nick talked about cities, and the, one of the key issues, obviously, in, in relation to growing population, etc., is, is the move to cities. To think about space and urban design, in terms of economic growth, but also in terms of compact planning, in terms of the health and well-being, and in terms of environmental um, qualities and thinking about green cities. We also look at ranging from that into any other item that you really want to pick out of a newspaper. We will have some research which is going on in the LSE which is going to be relevant for that. I used to teach fun, I used to teach it was all of a year ago, it seems like about 10 years ago, uh, regulation of financial markets. And pretty much every single class I would go into, I'd say, did you see in the FT this week? Did you see in the papers this week? It was about this, this and this. And the work is absolutely of direct relevance. So if I take it to, for example, conflict. Unfortunately, we have a lot of that going on. And we've got LSE work which goes on looking at the protection of refugees and displaced persons, whether they be in Sudan or whether they be asylum seekers within the EU. We've got work that's going on in relation to um, designing protections, legal protections for violence against women, 
That was not part of the international uh, legal regime until LSE research and LSE um, academics campaigned, because there's quite a lot of campaigning that goes on as well, to actually have those laws changed. Similarly, in relation to how we handle conflict situations and the need for, to protect human security. We also, and I have to give a plug for various people in the audience here, we also look at how our elected representatives are actually using the, um, the powers and performing the roles that we ask them to do in Vote Watch, for example, um, which actually had the interesting effect of actually making them do their job better, nothing like a bit of transparency, if you actually record it. And then, as Nick was saying, we engage in socioeconomic policies, and that doesn't always make us popular, and we go right across the economic and socioeconomic range, we go from fuel poverty to financial markets. Okay, so we run from looking at how we should best effectively manage um, child protection regimes, fighting cutbacks in legal aid, um, thinking about minimum wage, student fees, all the way through to the handling of the Eurozone uh, crisis. Okay, so we raise right across that spectrum here. Now, what does that mean, therefore, to be a centre of excellence in this? Well, it means a lot of work, actually, but it also means a lot of engagement. It means a lot of engagement with students, um, because in training people to think and to go out into the world, then hopefully we're training them to address these and many other problems which we all have to face as a society going forward. But it also means that we ourselves have to engage with policymakers and with those outside academia. And often we do this on a very unsung uh, and often unpaid basis. And for, for me and many of my colleagues, it's the email, could you just, could you just, would you mind coming to, we're holding an event, we're holding a forum, we'd like a panel, could you just read this consultation paper to go out, could we just have a chat with you, could we have lunch, could we have coffee? And that is from the UK government all the time, and from the European policymakers and from all the other different international organisations and, and national governments in which we're all involved in our different research. It's not highly visible, it's not necessarily with a big fanfare, and it's very rarely accredited. Okay, but it goes on all the time. So we have to, as universities, I think, actually make more of a splash about what it is that we do. We have to communicate better uh, to those outside the academy the impacts that we are having. That is part of our public duty, not only to enable the betterment of society, but to show to society how we are enabling it to better itself. Thank you. Uh, thank you uh, very much. Julia, now it's a, it's a great pleasure, actually, to welcome Greg Clark. Uh, it's fair to say, Greg, when uh, David Wills stopped doing the job, there's a slight degree of nervousness in the university sector. <laughs> Not least on my part. Uh, uh, and and uh, the response, we always tried to be perpetually negative, but we weren't able to muster that much negativity. So, obviously, you're an alum of LSE, and you are, you've got a grand title, Minister for Universities, Science and Cities. Indeed. So, we're delighted you've come to LSE, repeating the welcome given you by Nick, and the floor is... In whichever shape Thank you wish you to take it, yours. It's great to be back at LSE, and I'm um, I'm very grateful for the uh, for the invitation to to come back and let me let me say a bit about the, the policy uh, environment. But I do uh, my earliest memories of uh, LSE. In fact, um, coming from Cambridge, you asked me whether I was an undergraduate uh, here uh, at the beginning, um, and I said no, but but then I hesitated because I sort of was. Uh, because in my final year at Cambridge, um, I was doing a, uh, a dissertation on, um, on pay and how it influences behaviour. And this caused a kind of few 
uh, a few kind of quizzical looks in Cambridge and decided the place where they, they can talk about this is LSE. So they packed me off on the train down here to LSE to be supervised by Saul Esrin. And, uh, and, um, uh, and so, so he did that. Then, then needless to say, anyone that's supervised by Saul Esrin instantly gets the bug and, um, and I wasn't allowed to leave until I'd uh, completed my PhD in the subject. So, uh, so I was sort of a, uh, a covert under, undergraduate here as well. Um, but I, um, uh, but uh, my, uh, my, my training as a, uh, as a postgraduate and doing my uh, PhD here, uh, of course, um, was where I made most of my discoveries about how you think about the, uh, the world, to the point that I'm sure everyone here finds the same, that it's impossible to believe that anyone else can think about the world in a different way if you've, if you've trained uh, as a social scientist. And often comes as a surprise to, to find that people, that what is, uh, what is obvious uh, to you is not obvious to, uh, to everyone else. But I... Uh, and for me, the, the kind of thrill of social science and the, the thrill of discovery was right there. When you, have a, when you have a data set and you're plunging in it and you don't know what it's going to show and then you start to do the regressions and, uh, and you know, the, the coefficients come up sort of flashing with significance and you've, you feel you've discovered something as palpable and as tangible as if you're you know, discovering physical, geographical territory sort of uh, centuries uh, ago. And actually more interesting because it's about sort of human beings rather than uh, uh, what the Earth has uh, simply thrown up and left to, to be uh, discovered. And, uh, and I think that stays, stays with you. And I'm sure everyone uh, here that's, uh, that's in social sciences will, uh, will recognise uh, that. And as Julia has said and uh, Nick has uh, said, I mean, the applications of it are, uh, are so unbounded uh, that it is the... Yeah, the best possible uh, training, it, it, it seems to me, and, uh, and the best possible way to, to engage with the world because it's, it's about the world. Uh, and I know my uh, colleagues in, in the arts and humanities think much the same. I um, have this debate all the time uh, at home with my wife. My wife uh, read English and um, uh, naturally sort of thinks of the, the world uh, in, uh, through the, the eyes of... Uh, the humanities, but uh, but I think this is part of our of the richness uh, of our traditions of intellectual inquiry in this in this country that they coexist uh, together. Um, in most universities, of course, they are they are brought together. The the, the fact that we have a specialist uh, institution, more or less specialist institution, uh, in uh, LSE uh, allows a greater uh, focus. But actually, I've always found when I was studying here that the the interaction. Uh, in the University of London, which was a bit more prominent as an institution when, when, it, when I was here, but the, but the colleges you know, across the road and, uh, and, and further around uh, had been uh, a source of that, uh, that, that cross-fertilisation uh, that's always been there. Um, and I say all this, and it's important, I think, to emphasise the, the, the role of social sciences uh, and humanities in the academy. Again, I, I thought this was uncontroversial. Um, but I found, and my distinguished uh, former uh, colleague and predecessor as the university's uh, minister, uh, John Denham, is, uh, is here with us, um, uh, and, uh, and colleagues from, uh, from the political world. Uh, I was giving evidence to the Science and Technology um, Select Committee uh, last week uh, on the Science and Innovation Strategy, which we published before Christmas and which I'll uh, say a few words about. Um, and to my slight surprise, the, um, the committee uh, were you know, very broadly supportive of it, but they, 
They seem to find objection to the fact that it included the humanities uh, and the social sciences, that they felt this should be about the physical sciences uh, only, which, again, rather surprised me. And in the strategy, right from the, uh, the beginning, we say, we take the, 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 the Wissenschaft uh, definition that we regard the humanities and social sciences as being uh, part, of the, part of the great family that we have out there. But it seems so obvious to me that these connections, and Julia and Nick have, have made the, the point, uh, these, these connections, they're, they're so clear. And my work as uh, a science minister in, in government, every day I'm exposed to this. We had a discussion on uh, Ebola, um, for example, a few days uh, ago, and the, uh, and the work that's being done to, to combat that um, uh, terrible outbreak. Uh, obviously, it has very important um, medical uh, research and applications that are going on there. But for me, one of the most fascinating things was the contribution uh, of social anthropologists um, who had, uh, were reporting on and advising on the, uh, the, how the handling of dead bodies, human corpses, uh, is absolutely intrinsic to the, to the transmission uh, uh, of this disease and, of course, is determined very much by the cultural norms that the uh, the social anthropologists are there to, to discover. So there could not be anything more central to a current emergency than the, the, one of the disciplines that, the, that is at the heart of, uh, of social science. So it's, uh, I am defiant in, in insisting that we should uh, capture uh, all of the, the sciences, uh, uh, capture in our definition uh, of science the humanities and the social sciences as well. Not, not that definitions... Um, are easy to uh, to stick by. I think um, I was looking at the uh, I think the um, the Academy of Social Sciences gave a, a definition of social sciences: disciplined curiosity about the arrangements by which people live together, which is I think a, a pretty succinct encapsulation uh, of social sciences. But I'm I'm going to shamelessly. Um, I'll suck up to, uh, to, to Connor here uh, now, since uh, when I knew he was chairing it, I... I there is no time limit. There's no time limit on your presentation, <laughs> I pulled down from my bookshelf my uh, well-thumbed edition uh, of uh, Connor's Hamlin Lectures of uh, 2005, which is a fantastic read, if uh, any of you uh, haven't read them. And I... Um, and it's about human rights, of course, but he, I thought his... Um, what he said about human rights actually applies to the, uh, to the social sciences against that... Um, definition of disciplined curiosity. I rather liked um, uh, what Connor said about uh, human rights as being about the process of arguing, urging, campaigning, denouncing, encouraging, and asserting, uh, and asserting that all this advances the world's understanding of human rights. And I think that has a lot um, to carry across to, uh, to social sciences as well. So it doesn't need to uh, conform to, to very precise uh, uh, definitions of the, the discipline. Uh, let, let me do what I'm supposed to, to do, which is to say as a policymaker uh, what, what I think are the, uh, the policy directions that I, I hope we can share, and if, if not, then we can certainly uh, debate. Um, we, we set it out just before Christmas in um, our, uh, our tenure strategy for uh, science innovation, and it reflected a consultation that... Um, and taken place in which the British Academy and, uh, and other learned societies, as well as institutions and individuals, uh, had uh, contributed. Um, and what it looked to do was to, I think, reflect what both Julia and Nick commented on, which is the, the justified 
position of confidence that I think UK science and social sciences and humanities uh, enjoy at the moment. We, uh, by any measure, uh, this is an area of, uh, of strength and national pride. Uh, and I think it is increasingly recognised around the world in this country, uh, and not just within the, the academic world, but absolutely uh, within the world of uh, policymakers. I mean, the REF was, uh, was a wonderful testimony to that. When Julia mentioned the, um, the ingenuity of social scientists in, in re-ranking or producing rankings <laughs> that capture things, I was reminded of uh, Garrison Keillor, you know, in, the, uh, uh, in his Lake Wobegon days. I think it's the, uh, the beginning of every one of his short stories uh, talks about Lake Wobegon, where, uh, where all the men are good-looking and all the children are above average. I think the, uh, the, the spirit of that has, uh, has gone to, to play in the analysis of the, uh, of the rankings there. But actually, I, but I it's, think it's all, all the women are strong, all the men are beautiful, and all the children are above there we are. There's, uh, there, there's a fan. <laughs> exactly. but, I, uh, but it was a testimony to, uh, to what we all know, which is that, that the quality, the, the excellence that Nick talked about um, of uh, science in this country is formidable. You know, 72% uh, of the uh, submissions to, to the REF and the units of assessment uh, as, as world-class um, is a tremendous reflection uh, of the state. Uh, of UK science in this uh, broad definition. Um, and, and it seems to me, in terms of the, of the future, it's a, it, it seems to be an obvious reflection that if you want to think about how you're going to earn your living uh, as a nation in the future, it's probably appropriate to ask that question from time to time, as it is for us all, as it is for parents of uh, children, then the answer, it seems to me, is likely to, to look at your strengths uh, and then to ask yourself whether these areas of strengths are likely to be in demand uh, in the, the years ahead. And when it comes to, uh, to universities, when it comes to, uh, to science, uh, broadly defined, uh, we know that as the world becomes better educated, as that it becomes more technologically sophisticated, as it becomes, uh, on the whole, uh, but not exclusively, wealthier, then then what we are good at uh, seems clear to be in increasing demand. So I think we are in a position uh, of strength, and when we, uh, uh, we set up the 10-year the look ahead as a plan for growth, the, these words are significantly chosen because we expect to, to be able to build uh, on that. But if you are looking ahead, uh, I think it is appropriate to ask some questions about how the world is changing and how the context is changing. Certainly you need stability and certainly you need to, uh, to respect the sources of those strengths. Um, but I, was, uh, I, I enjoyed writing the strategy with, um, uh, with colleagues because uh, it seemed to me that looking at all the responses to the consultation we had, we were able to distill out some themes that are, uh, I think, are common ground um, amongst everyone that takes an interest uh, in this area, starting with excellence. You know, excellence is uh, at the heart uh, of our reputation, it's the foundation uh, of our reputation, um, and it doesn't happen by accident, and I think we need to be respectful of some of the, the things that contribute to that. Uh, independence, as the uh, other panellists mentioned. Um, sometimes, uh, I say, uh, university uh, ministers of uh, one colour or another might wish they, um, they were able to, to direct um, universities, but actually not really, uh, because actually the, it is the, the fierce 
assertiveness and independence uh, of universities that is the source of our strength, and, and any such thoughts tend to be uh, tend to be fleeting and instantly replaced uh, by a recognition that actually uh, the that the robust independence of our institutions uh, is absolutely the the foundation uh, of our excellence. Um, the the principles that have been uh, established through debate and through public policy being advanced uh, of uh, an independence uh, in funding terms as well, so that peer review uh, is the way uh, in which uh, particular projects are selected for public uh, funding. Uh, that can be, uh, as everyone uh, who has been part of that process knows, that can be uh, sometimes a uh, a challenging uh, experience, and sometimes it can uh, lead to unwelcome results. But it's absolutely the, the foundation uh, of the, the level of excellence that I think has been demonstrated uh, in the, the REF. I think the dual funding system that we have uh, for uh, research, um, and of course it applies to all of the, the different disciplines, uh, is absolutely important that we, uh, we fund through peer review uh, we fund excellent projects and excellent uh, propositions, but we also, uh, through the HEFKE uh, process, recognise, uh, and through and informed by the REF, we recognise institutional capability, and that provides a, uh, a, a long-term or medium to, to long-term uh, uh, security uh, of funding. So I think they, these are important principles that we should uh, reflect on, and I think we... Uh, our success is built on them, and we need to continue them uh, in future. Um, the second theme that we, uh, we talk about in the strategy uh, is one of collaboration, and all of the speakers uh, mentioned that. The, the school uh, is founded on the idea that these adjacent disciplines will inform uh, one another and that the, uh, the boundaries between uh, disciplines such as they are purported to be are not that hard. They, they are permeable um, and, and should uh, inform each other. And I think that is true, uh, as I mentioned, across um, you know, between subject areas beyond the social sciences and beyond humanities uh, too. Uh, I think this is increasingly uh, the case, and, and other speakers have made uh, mention of it. Some of the most interesting and thrilling work uh, is when uh, researchers in different disciplines uh, come together. So, uh, for example, some of the, the medical research uh, that depends on the analytical capabilities of big data, um, for example, and some of the, uh, the technical uh, capabilities that we have there are bringing people together uh, in, uh, in a way that is much more collaborative uh, than ever before. Collaboration between... The, between academics uh, and industrialists uh, and the commercial world. And the you know, LSE located here you know, between Westminster and, uh, and the city has always uh, had that sort of coursing through uh, its veins. And increasingly we see right across the, the country uh, the, the close <coughs> links uh, between our best institutions uh, and their local economies um, unambiguously now. Uh, the universities are the leaders uh, of their local economies, uh, wherever they are, and, and, uh, and often of the, the national uh, economy too. The idea of, uh, uh, of a city, um, much studied, and it's one of the areas that I've long had a particular interest in, I think is analogous to 
uh, to university in, in, in many ways. You know, what is a city? It's something somewhere that brings people together so that they can specialise but collaborate, so that they can work with each other to do things that are not possible uh, if you're in isolation. Uh, they bring different, uh, different skills, different attributes, different uh, talents uh, together. And that is, uh, I think, increasingly a reflection of how uh, universities and good research in the social sciences and beyond uh, work. Uh, so the question for us is how can we make sure our arrangements, institutional and policy, uh, reinforce uh, collaboration, support it, and don't put impediments uh, to it uh, in, in place? Um, the third theme that, uh, of five that we uh, identify uh, in the, the strategy uh, is that of agility. Um, and that is about pace. You know, one of the things that people... Uh, observed when we were discussing the, the strategy in, in prospect was just how the pace of innovation, uh, the pace of discovery, the pace of transmission uh, of ideas is quickening all the time. Uh, and uh, for all sorts of uh, reasons, the, the, the commercial appetite to take on discoveries and, uh, and apply them, the, the physical means of communicating electronically uh, rather than uh, just through printed uh, matter, uh, the, uh, the, the, the internationalization uh, of, uh, of academia, meaning that we're not just uh, talking to, uh, to people who are geographically approximate. All of these things mean that the pace uh, is uh, increasing. And so, again, our arrangements, both within institutions and in public policy, uh, must make sure that we can, be, we can keep pace with that, that we don't lose opportunities by being ponderous uh, and, uh, and cumbersome in our approaches, uh, that funding streams are agile enough to be able to not uh, commit uh, all of our resources uh, for, for all of the foreseeable future, uh, but to allow for the, the sudden uh, possibility of important research that needs to be uh, it needs to have funding available for it. So informed by that, in, uh, in allocating the science capital uh, for uh, the next uh, five and six years, we reserve some back to, to keep for the challenges that will emerge uh, for the Research Council, principally to, uh, to uh, fund uh, the challenges uh, in future years, to make sure that we are uh, agile uh, as, as, as we can be. Uh, the fourth um, uh, theme was place, um, and I think there is, both within government and uh, within institutions, a, a greater recognition than there ever has been of the importance of, uh, of place, whether it is local leadership, uh, whether it is the, the clustering of like-minded people in institutions and discipline. They can add so much to each other that we should consider this. And John Den Denham uh, is done great, doing great work uh, on this in uh, Southampton and convened uh, an excellent uh, seminar there to uh, involving the universities to, to further uh, advance the, uh, the, the possibility uh, of leadership there. Uh, and finally, in the strategy, we talk about uh, openness. Some of these developments, technological uh, and others, give us the... Uh, the ability uh, to communicate way beyond lecture halls uh, like this. Uh, and there is an increasing appetite and expectation, I think, on the part of the public that they shouldn't be excluded uh, from the kind of inquiry that, uh, that takes place here, that they should, be, uh, uh, they should see what's going on, they should know what's going on, and they should participate in it. And, of course, uh, uh, Nick's own uh, review uh, on climate change uh, was something that... Uh, sparked, uh, encouraged, and facilitated 
uh, a mass uh, involvement from people uh, a long way from uh, from uh, being uh, employed uh, in the the disciplines that that were uh, that were covered by his review, but nevertheless felt and, and were right to feel that they have a stake in it and have something to say uh, around it. Uh, so it seems to me that um, we. Uh, we start from a position of great strength. I don't think, notwithstanding the, um, uh, the exchanges I have with select committees, that anyone uh, takes serious exception to the idea that social sciences, the humanities, should be considered uh, with uh, the, the physical sciences uh, and uh, engineering uh, in quite the way that um, Nick describes, not as, uh, not as rivals but as, uh, as complementary. Uh, I think there is a recognition across party uh, and across the country uh, that we are, we have something very substantial and precious uh, in our capability, our force uh, in uh, research, uh, and that we need to add to it uh, over the years uh, ahead. Uh, that we are in a, a position, if we think clearly about the future, uh, and it's not principally the government, given the independence of the institutions, that um, that will enact uh, the policies that will. Uh, give expression to it, but if all of us uh, think ahead and make sure that we are uh, continue our traditions of excellence, that we uh, are as collaborative uh, as anywhere in, in the world and, and, and lead the pace in that, that we're flexible and agile and can take uh, opportunities, uh, that we recognize the increasing uh, importance uh, of place, uh, and that we lead the world in the openness uh, of our inquiry. Uh, that, I think, is a, uh, is a recipe for the continuation uh, of the successes that we've enjoyed uh, in recent years. Uh, I don't know for, the, for uh, John and I will take the, the same view. For those of us that have the privilege to, uh, to be the, uh, the sponsors uh, of, the, uh, of this community uh, in public life, it is a tremendous privilege and a tremendous honour as it is to be back here at the school. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, uh, Greg. We have till 25 past seven, uh, and I have a question or two, uh, but I'm wondering whether people want to catch my eye as well. I think I'll, I'll ask my question, and then I might come to the audience. Uh, there's a water bargaining crisis. There's no crisis. There's no crisis. My question is to all three, but I, I want to come to the audience before we go to the answers, and if we can be short, we can get a bunch in. Uh, we concede, looking at us, the arts and humanities and social sciences people broadly, that we need to show some kind of impact for our research. And you kind of say we can have money for research. So there's a sort of important meetings of mind. What I'm interested in, the question I've got, is how strict should we be about knowing in advance what the impact's going to be because, or what it might be? Quite a lot of us in humanities and social sciences say we're going to research X. Now, and then we end up producing some really interesting stuff on Y. But we couldn't prove that we were going to come up with Y when we bid for the money for X. So just to reflect on that and think about how, how much we want to be prescriptive about impact. This is a big sensitive issue in the universities. But is there anybody who wants to kick us off before I go to the, the panel? Uh, we have... And even though I obviously know, I mean, who you are, could you just say, as the microphone hurtles towards you, who you are, and if it's directed at a particular person, who, to whom it's directed? Well, it was responding to your point about how, how much should we have a clear goal. Um, I was just going to talk of my own experience of uh, 
having recently done a, a review for the government of the child protection system, which has led to radical changes, so had a very big impact. But it stems from work which began without that goal in mind at all. Um, it began as a curiosity as to how it could be in such a mess. And I ended up getting a detour into aviation for quite a while um, and into accountancy, um, all sorts of things. And, and you know, then it, it sort of came together. But if you'd asked me years ago to specify, I would have been doing very dull research um, instead of having a very good time following my curiosity. Yeah, and if we changed it for impact, you mightn't have been so hot in the application form at the time, is what you're sort of implying. I wouldn't have had the impact I had. Yeah. No. yeah. Uh, so anybody else wants to ask a separate question? Yeah, right at the back, and we're proving the fitness. We're not. We have a huge number of stewards. Uh, your name, sir, and a brief question for the panel. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, my name's uh, Matthew Home. It's, it's for, the, for the whole panel, and it's just taken up on some of the points just made. Um, is, fun, is getting funding for humanities, government otherwise, um, is, is it having criteria from other subjects? So... Should there be more sort of distinctive humanity, unique humanities criteria for getting funding as opposed to being judged, you know, maybe using the same criteria as other, other disciplines? Right, brilliant. Thanks a lot. And uh, I think I'm going to have Simon, who will now tell us who he is, and a quick question. And then we'll go to the panel briefly. Simon Hicks, the uh, uh, professor in the government department here at the LSE. Um, I had a follow-on question from that, which is that We've seen, I mean, you know, we have this kind of collective love in about how wonderful the humanities and the social sciences are, uh, but we've seen a relative decline in funding for the public funding for the humanities and social sciences over the last decade. Um, I'm, I'm just intrigued at what is the evidence base for the continued high funding for the STEM subjects relative to the humanities and social sciences? And is it based on impact of research, or is it based on productivity gains in the economy or the probability that these kids will get jobs in the creative industries or in the natural sciences? Yeah. Uh, okay. What's the evidence okay. basis for this Brilliant. and what does the evidence say? Right, thanks Simon. I think we'll, we'll start with Nick and go to Julia and Greg but what I'm going to start doing is interrupting you so keep the responses brief if you can. Nick, do you want to kick off on these? On, uh, uh, Choose which one. Yeah, let, let me say something about uh, impact. Um, I think a rather general idea on impact about um, is there a good chance that this program of research will influence our understanding in an important way about things that matter. Now, I know it's a rather general statement, but I think in most of the things that uh, we set out to do, I think we should be able to say something about the answer to that question. We've all got our own stories. My very first research grant was £750 from the British Academy in 1974 to study one Indian village uh, in Muradabad district of uh, UP. Um, I've been working on that village now for 40 years and uh, we've just had, we've got one data set, 100% sample of households for every decade since independence because there were two before uh, we went, and so we built a data set which enables us to understand uh, how people's incomes, family circumstances change over a long period of time. Now, that hasn't immediately uh, had an impact on uh, government policy, say, in India, although I've spent quite a lot of time explaining the story to the Prime Minister and um, other members of, of the Cabinet. But what we have to do is to, when we embark on something like that, to be able to suggest 
how it changes our understanding, in this case of income mobility and, uh, and changing circumstances. Um, I don't think there's a licence to explore simply because you think you're smart, whatever it is that you're interested in, on an unlimited scale. There is, I think, it is a good idea to encourage people to ha- or give people some of their time, that's what I take it that QR is about, to do that kind of thing. But it's not unlimited. So when we pursue a research grant, we ask for a substantial amount of money to do something. I think there is an obligation to illustrate at least what it might influence. So I'm having it both ways. Some of our time, through QR, good idea, pursue whatever it is that, uh, that uh, interests us. But on the basis of a track record of having done something in the past, and then on the specific, the other side of the dual funding, then it seems to me to ask people to show why there's a reasonable expectation of some impact, it, I think that's very reasonable. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Julia, do you have something to add from that point of view? Um, I mean, <coughs> just to come in here on the... Um, talked about the, the impact um, agenda and whether you can show in advance. And I think one of the... Um, one of the issues that, that comes up for social sciences is the way that it's framed at the moment is very much based on a kind of STEM model. So you grow some cultures in the lab and uh, then you do a little bit more kind of research and development and 15 years later you get a little white pill which you can patent uh, and then you can sell. Um, and so linked to the impact agenda is a commercialization agenda linked to uh, our innovation and uh, excellence funding, the high funding actually which we use for an awful lot of our communication activities is an expectation that you will then be able to commercialize. But it's very difficult to commercialize and to patent social science research. It doesn't work that way. Um, and moreover, the impacts that we're talking about having are on policy or on public understanding or on our identity. Some of them are very difficult to measure. But also we know that they can be quite serendipitous. And certainly if you're talking about influencing policy, then you're really talking about are you pushing against an open door or are you actually counterculture? So is the only impact you're having actually quite a conservative, conventional one because you're only telling policymakers what they already wanted to know or to hear uh, and providing them evidence which is quite useful for their purposes? If you're resistant, if you're oppositional uh, in the... uh, the, the evidence that you're coming up with isn't convenient or doesn't fit with the prevailing policy um, wishes, then it's very unlikely you're going to have an impact, um, at least during a particular policy cycle. So there's a fair amount of serendipity there, and it also takes a fair amount of time. We've done our own analysis of uh, the, the, the time, as it were, between our, our impact, the research being done and produced, and then the impact it's actually had. It takes about six or seven years. Um, but actually for the same proportion of our research, it took about six to seven years to impact, is actually where we had a policy impact and then we just went and wrote up the research afterwards. Because we're called into government for our expertise and our arguments and our wider experience and not because we grew those little cells in that little culture dish which then produced a little white pill. So the way that we engage with um, public debate and with public policy is not necessarily this very, very linear route, which I think is sometimes envisaged in the way that we think about impact. And also, just to take in times that time dimension. So the issue about the dual funding stream, absolutely. Um, you know, QR is fantastic. We'd like more of it, just to put a marker down there. 
Um, Connor said we weren't going to bid for resources. I'm not that shameless. Um, so I'm not that polite, I'm afraid. Um, but also just in terms of the, the dual funding stream, being able to have the opportunity to pursue research along lines which may not have already been thought of by those who are allocating those funding streams. So open funding streams, I think, are important. But also a recognition that, do you know what, if you're starting off your PhD and the, the Research Council is asking you to show your impact after a year, you are unlikely to get anything which is really of any significance. You might get dissemination, but you're not going to be able to show impact. So it's a recognition when it comes to that funding stream as well that actually impacts are tentative, and actually what you really want is actually making a difference, not just having a lot of hype. So I just need a little bit more sophistication around the impact debate. Right, thanks. Sophistication, Greg, around the impact debate, and also not forgetting the, the audience's... Uh, suggestions of uh, certain uh, spitting race, I think it might have been referred to earlier. <laughs> uh, and as short as you can, because we'll try and get another round in. Sure, no, sorry. I mean, on, uh, on impact, I mean, it, clearly it is obviously right to retain an ability for curiosity-driven research. It's absolutely essential to it. I was talking to Lord Krebs the other day. He was telling me that um, you know, his discipline is in this study of birds and how that has led to uh, looking at financial markets, some of the um, uh, some of the kind of patterns that he discovered uh, in the natural world, applying to uh, to networks there. He, and he, needless to say, when he was um, uh, embarking, he never never thought that he would be writing papers on on financial markets uh, as a result. And I'm sure uh, I haven't read the paper, but I dare say that it's uh, it's highly impactful. Um, so you do need to. And the um, liked it. Um, did he? Well, I, I, I will certainly read the paper then. Uh, as as Nick says, I think, and these, these things are are difficult to to get right, um, and the, I think, don't think there's a particular formula that can that can crack it. But you know, what Nick said is uh, is I think is justified that that it is clearly highly desirable to 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 be able to to show uh, that this is making an impact, that it is making uh, a difference. Sometimes that that will be ex post and. Um, uh, and actually, through the through the ref, it seems to me the institutions have been able to uh, to include things that have been impactful that perhaps didn't have the impact that was intended when they, the the work was first embarked on. And I think, you know, in terms of the, uh, the the lessons to be drawn from this ref, I, I'd be interested in comments from the from the room. But uh, on the impact, I get the feeling that it it was less it was less difficult to to have a kind of reasonable reflection than some, sometimes people thought going into it, that they were a bit more concerned than the outcome. But I, for this, as you know, I, uh, and, uh, I didn't, didn't make the evaluation, so, um, but I'd be interested in, in people's views on that. Uh, in terms of the, um, uh, the, uh, the evidence base and, and, the, uh, and the ability for the humanities and the social sciences to be uh, to be funded uh, alongside uh, STEM. I mean, clearly there are different bodies that make different uh, decisions uh, on this. So all I would say that one of the the key calls that I had to I've had to make in uh, in the last six months uh, is when we introduced uh, or announced the introduction of the the postgraduate uh, loan scheme for uh, for uh, taught postgraduate uh, degrees, ten thousand pounds available. There was a, a school of thought um, that. Argued consistent with um, with some sort of recent 
arguments that this should be for STEM subjects. I, I was very clear that um, the evidence base, as, uh, as you put it, was just as convincing for the social sciences and the humanities that this was uh, a... Uh, in every respect, that, that, that it was going to be uh, a good investment for, uh, for the nation as well as for, for the individual, um, that it was, uh, in terms of, uh, of access and, and participation, it was just as desirable that brilliant people uh, in the humanities should be able to pursue their studies to the, uh, to the next level uh, as, in, uh, as in STEM. Uh, and that argument was, uh, was accepted, and, and it's one that I will make. Um, Nick is, uh, is here, he represents the, the British Academy, and I dare say you know, the, uh, the, 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 the friendly rivalry between the other um, learned societies um, are about making this, making this argument for, uh, for social sciences in the, uh, in the area in which the, you know, the decision that they then shape the decisions on, on who gets most of the, the plot that's available. Thanks, Greg. Just very, very quickly. Are we just, it's a, almost like yeah. only a correction, is it? it it's, uh, it's a statistic in response um, to the, the, the question, Simon, here. It's the, if you look at reveal preference in the language of uh, the nerdy economists amongst us, and what do people choose? More than half the overseas students who come to this country uh, choose the humanities mm. and social sciences. There's a, a, an international reveal preference about the importance of what we do. They come here, more than half of them, to do the right. humanities and social yeah. sciences. Uh, I, I'm looking around. I have a question. I think we can't ignore it. The it's for you, I think, Greg, the new counterterrorism and security bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is, we know the British Academy's position, mm-hmm. very critical. LSE's issued a statement, very critical. Uh, there's a, a letter declaring an interest, I'm one of the signatories, mm-hmm. 524 academics. Mm-hmm. We're deeply concerned that the counterterrorism and security bill, currently being debated in Parliament, will place an unlawful and unenforceable duty on educational institutions and staff. I, I won't go into the thing, but there's a great fear that exactly what you applauded is going to be made much more difficult by a bureaucratic imposition of constraints on speech in universities, all because, you know, there's a scared idea about extremism, but it's not violent extremism, it's just extremism. So you will know there's great concern. I know it's not your ministry. I imagine you will have one or two comments on it because I think it's before the Lords tomorrow. But I I think I am hugging it a bit as chair. I mean, do you want to take that one very quickly? Yeah, Yeah. if you don't mind. It's really aimed at you. Sure. Uh, I think we need to make the distinction. So there is the the legislation um, which imposes a duty to have regard specifically to to people being drawn into terrorism. Uh, And then there is the the guidance that is uh, uh, reflected there. Uh, and uh, I, think it is, I think it is a reasonable reflection for not just universities but for the other uh, groups to, uh, as it were, to have this in mind, you know, to, to, to understand you know, that there may be occasionally people uh, who have terrorist intent, and we see this uh, around the, the world. Uh, and that is no more than a recognition, and there are already University of the UK guidance uh, on these matters. Um, uh, that is, uh, I think, accepted. In terms of the guidance, and I think there, there have been some, um, uh, some sort of, uh, concerns uh, expressed uh, about them, I think uh, two things to say. One is that they, uh, they're in draft for consultation, um, and 
part of the part of the, the point of parliamentary debate and indeed consultation uh, is to be able to have them shaped to avoid what would clearly be the, the total opposite of the, the intention uh, of that. And, the, uh, and more than that, the, the importance of free speech uh, as you know, a kind of shining you know, contradiction to, uh, to what terrorism uh, aims at has to be, you know, universities have to be the place uh, when not only is that possible, but it is where it is positively encouraged. Um, so uh, I think you're know, talking to my colleagues, and I do talk to my colleagues uh, across government uh, on this, that is absolutely understood, um, and uh, I hope and expect we'll be able to, to get to a position that, that reflects in the guidance what is the, uh, the intention uh, of the the legislation will be debated in the laws tomorrow and there will be a response uh, in due course to the Constitution. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. That's very helpful. Uh, we are beginning to wind down, but I think it's, it's good. We have a gentleman with his hand up with the degree of enthusiasm that warrants notice. Do we have anybody? I think this may be it. This may, we have another gentleman, slightly less enthusiastic, therefore has to be shorter. <laughs> and then we will finish within the next three minutes. Sir, it will need to be pretty succinct and possibly aimed at a single member of the panel. Uh, to the panel in general, uh, my name is uh, John Koval. I'm uh, from one of your colonies called the United States. And uh, one of the things that concerns me that I think the humanities and uh, social sciences are missing enormously is what is happening uh, in, in, in the cities in the world. And I look at my own country and my own city of Chicago that we're becoming two worlds, a white world and a brown and a black world. Yeah. And the discrimination, the, the segregation uh, that is going on in the, urban, in, the, in the urban world is something, I think, that needs to be profoundly addressed by the humanities and the social sciences. Right. We take it as a kind of observation, I think, John, yes, which, but it's a very important point. I'm glad we've had it registered. Sir, you've got a microphone. Name yeah. and quick question. Okay. My name is Christian Enscrober. I'm from Austria. So I don't know anything special about your university, but my question goes to Professor Black, because you talked a lot about application and impact of your research. But there may be some research which has no direct application or which is foreseeable has no application. Um, and you didn't talk about that so much. So I would ask you if, how would you defend uh, projects, for example, in philosophy of science, where you can see, oh, this has clearly no, no uh, impact, or no impact on policy making, or yeah. no, no, no practical impact. Yeah, good, please. Thanks, no, Christian. Thank you. No, it's a very good question. I mean, I talked about impact because I was said a question and a thing to talk about when I talked about impact. Um, but in terms of the... In terms of pure research and pure curiosity, that is, that is the lifeblood of academia. That is, what you, that is why people go into academia, because they're curious, as Arlene said. You never know where it's going to take you. Um, and we should preserve a space for that. Uh, we should preserve a, fa a space for what, what in, in, in science is called pure research. So you're just, just inquiring because you don't know where it will go. And that is hugely valuable. And even... But then even within the philosophy of science, for example, you take here, so we have philosophers, and our, our philosophers are, are, are nicely abashed and slightly embarrassed about their impacts, actually, because they, they, they were rated very highly. They didn't think they would be. But um, <laughs> sort of <laughs> shame. <laughs> <laughs> my God, we had impact. And it was actually on, actually on the theory of probability and looking deep into the philosophy of, of probability theory 
And from that, actually working with our statisticians um, in the area of climate change, in fact, to argue that probabilistic models are probably, are probably, that's nicely ironic, not the best way to be thinking about future risks. Uh, and then, in fact, we need to be using scenario analysis to reveal uncertainty and not pretending a certainty that we can get through fiddling around with probability. So that actually came not through any direct um, desire to think, I'm going to influence the Dutch government, as it was, on how they think about climate change. Oh, what do I need to do that? I need to roll back and go into the theory of probability. It started off with curiosity, thinking about probability. It started off with conversations, talking to you know, people in our centre of the analysis of time series, which I'm reliably informed is not the same as time series analysis, and I just say yes, absolutely, um, to, to just about different ideas and what do you think. And then there was the Grantham Institute, and they do climate change, and, and there's quite a lot of modelling that goes on there. So, hey, this thing came together. So you have to preserve that space for pure research mm -hmm. because you don't know. It goes to the future. It goes to the pace of change. We don't know what the future questions are going to be we're going to need to answer. So we need to just enable ourselves to be able to answer them as and when they arise. Very good. Nick, very, very briefly, and Greg, it'll be minute, but a tiny wrap-up. I, I think we ought to respond to our friend from Chicago. Um, let me just draw attention to Amartya Sen's book on... Um, fellow of the British Academy, on identity and violence. And what the major theme of that book was to um, draw attention to how dangerous it is to define people by one thing, by their religion, their language, their uh, colour, and that we are people, that a human being has many dimensions. And he, used, he developed that to show how um, such definitions could uh, lead to violence, and he used that argument to argue very strongly against segregated schools, including segregated schools by faith. So that seems to me to be the kind of um, philosophical and practical inquiry that starts by saying, what are we like as human beings, and starts to take you fairly quickly to some of the deep uh, policy questions. There are obviously many more kinds of answers, but I just wanted yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want to leave it lying on the yeah, table. Thanks, Nick. Good. And uh, Greg, are we happy to wrap up? Sure, and I uh, just... Julia answered it uh, expertly. Of course we need to, to be able to recognise the contributions of people that um, uh, for whom impact is, is a difficult thing to, uh, to define, let alone uh, to demonstrate. Right. We're, we're, pretty well, we're, pretty, we're pretty well there. I just want to notice from the British Academy, Tim Brazel, who is absolutely instrumental in organising this, and Jane from the Institute of Public Affairs. Can I call you from the Institute of Public Affairs? Uh, so people have really worked hard to make this event happen. Uh, and, and we thought uh, we'd have the normal thing, Greg, which is obviously a fantastic room. We, we choose, uh, and also a brilliant banquet. We normally follow these things. Around. We thought it would send the wrong message. We thought it would send the wrong message to have our usual banquet, folks. So there's nothing afterwards. But uh, what we would like you to do as our guests leave, because we're going to give them a, a glass of diluted orange juice, is uh, to uh, uh, thank, in the normal way, not only the home team, uh, Julia, and the home and away slightly team, Nick, but especially Greg, who has a busy time and lots of excuses not to be here, to come here and to, uh, to speak, if I may say so, so honestly and clearly about the subject that is fantastically of interest to him. I thought at the start he was a kind of doing a job interview. I thought he was